The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask and the series I called out, but they didn't hear me, with our guests, Dr. Marianne Perot and Dr. Gifford Rainey, as we explore the topic of healthcare diversity and inclusion in the UK and beyond. Let's get back into the conversation. One of the things that inspired me to do this podcast and to have you all on as guests was in response to my experience in kind of corporate clinical research. And that is that we here in the U.S. have an obviously long history, um, maybe not as long as the U.K., of addressing and speaking out and fighting against racism and a variety of other isms. And so because of kind of who we are culturally, we do these things out loud, whether or not people want to hear it or not. Right. And some people manage to tune it out. Some people manage to tune it off. But it is a part of our cultural identity, nonetheless, and also a part of our international impression, if you will. As you mentioned, Dr. Ramey, there's certain leaders um, such as Muhammad Ali who made impressions upon Mm -hmm. black communities beyond the U.S. borders on purpose and with intent. And with that, when we look at clinical research, right? And as my previous series on advancing accurate representation and research, we have different tools that we use to educate around these topics of how to educate and also implement processes that will help to improve the number and percentage of non-white people and, and women in trials, right? Women and girls in trials. But when we try to take those and translate them into a non-U.S. setting, there's oftentimes pushback. Pushback can come from the U.S. entity and or the international entity to Mm. say, well, that doesn't really apply here. You know, that doesn't really, we don't have those same types of historic patterns. And maybe it's because, you know, especially in the case of European countries, the percentage or proportion of non-white populations is lower than what it is here in the U.S. But it also, I think, speaks to the idea that racism was kind of born out of Europe and pushed into the world for the purpose of the transatlantic slave trade, right? It was something that was developed in order to justify that type of mass terrorism. And so one of the questions that I have for you as we think about these cultural norms and practices, these teachings, and how it affects our health outcomes is how does this affect diversity inclusion practices in clinical trials? I mean, Dr. Farrow mentioned how, you know, there's all these new advances in and in, in, in what can be done to help keep people healthy from a variety of different health issues. She mentioned, you know, some people in, you know, upper classes or people who are privileged may know about, right, certain cancer treatments that can help them because of the networks that they're plugged into. And I know that here in the U.S., we have those problems related Mm -hmm. to making sure that everyone is able to benefit 
from these clinical trials, whether as a participant and or as a post-market recipient of these approved medical devices or pharmaceutical interventions. And I just want to know more about it from the context of the UK. How is diversity and inclusion in research affected? I think that, um, so on that point around big pharma and industry, I think I think they've been a- able to get away with it for such a long time to not mm. be bothered by it. And I think it's 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 really challenging because of, you know, what's at stake here. But ultimately, you know, it hasn't been put into legislation that they have to. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be somewhat of a stick and a carrot, you know, on some of these big items. Otherwise, you know, what's the incentive for mm-hmm. big pharma to change and and to be more inclusive? And I think, you, see, you know, we see this through our innovation work. So working with various different tech innovators and the data set is so incredibly important that, you know, they need to be getting it right first time. So. You know, we have this history where, you know, a white male was seen mm-hmm. as the default human being. Mm-hmm. That's why there are more men in clinical trials. So, you know, that's why with, for example, the COVID vaccine, the first in human testing was not done on men and women. It was only done on men. Mm-hmm. So you have still today these practices where individuals think that they're rooted within morals and ethics of, or oh, we can't have women of childbearing age be the first mm. in a human, you know, test subjects, you know, what if it affects their fertility? Whereas I'm saying you're, you know, the, the massive assumption that all women will have a baby. Mm. Some women don't want to have children. Amen. Some women want to participate and still want to be part. And they're, they can be, you know, they've got brains and, you know, we can assess the risks and still provide informed consent to participate because we think it's important mm-hmm. to exclude us from that decision. Mm-hmm. I just think is one of the most paternalistic elements that's you know within research and clinical trials. We know best for you, mm-hmm. and so what happens is you know before we even get onto ethnic minorities not being clinical trials, we haven't even got mm-hmm. women. We haven't even got fifty percent right. of participants being women. So. There's just so much to do. But as I said, I think I think there needs to be a bit of a, a stick to say that this is what is required, is that the trials need to be in alignment with your population. And I, I just don't think the incentives are there at the moment. And I've seen it in tech. So I've seen a particular digital solution that only used a male data set. And then they turned the solution to be a, a women's wellness app. Mm. well how can how can you be sure that that works for women if you've only ever tested it on men Mm. there isn't the expectation to you know ensure that your data and who you're testing on and uh, aligns with the end user so i think that that's something that that really needs to change and i think that there's i'm personally known as a bit of a rebel and I, I really don't, I don't like rules, but I think on this thing, welcome. you know, we've, we've tried to nudge people in the right direction. And I think at some point there has to be a consequence to say, you know, this is just the right thing to do. And we all need to move in that same, we're not asking a lot, 
We just want to make sure that your participants in your trial are representative of the populations that you serve. So, you know, I, I think that that's the way forward. And and that last bit, which is on, can can something that's in the UK, how does that align with the US? You know, I think some things are very similar. I think things around racism that I've seen in Australia towards First Nations people, Aboriginal people, those issues um, still have colonial roots. Mm -hmm. And so how we manage them and how we fix them will still be the same. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think that there are significant synergies across those countries. Any of the colonial countries have very similar problems. I think in research and innovation, it depends, really. I think that there are some things that translate across populations and some mm -hmm. things where there needs to be some more thought as to whether or not, you know, the ethnicity and diversities within those populations, you know, whether or not it, what the impact might be on whatever it might be, the cancer treatment or the technology. And I guess I just want people to think about it early in right. the development and design. And yeah. I want to just add to that, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Rainey, sure. in that when we, when I have been trained in and worked in the field of translational science, implementation and dissemination science, the core concepts have to do with being able to customize interventions to the specific populations, to the specific communities, to the specific settings effectively, and understanding what core elements of that particular inter intervention cannot change or should not be changed, but then what other elements can be adjusted to fit whatever setting that it's going in. And then, so for me, it was really shocking and off-putting that when it came to talking about diversity and inclusion in clinical trials, that that sort of theory and framework was not able to translate to non-U.S. markets. And that there was a lot of a variety of cultural, political will that was not there and pushed back. Even when I was thinking about, you know, people... And we are definitely talking a lot about Black people, right, in this call. Mm -hmm. But I recognize that there is diversity and inclusion that is necessary to be done even in Asian countries, right, mm -hmm. where there's not just exclusively one type of anybody in any country. There's always going to be some sort of diversity and inclusion by nature of our humanity, right? And the way that we move through the world and the way that we interact and the way that we seek out opportunity. We just got finished talking about that in terms of our own stories. So it's challenging to me when industry is not able to do that same type of adaptation. Are they not able or do they not want to? They're not willing. I think they're not willing to do it. And I think that's what I was saying about that there's no incentive for them to have right. to change. And they're just looking at it from, you know, it's what you talked about before about the business case. They're kind of looking <laughs> going, well, we don't do anything. It doesn't cost us anything. You know, it, 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 what, what is the, what is the return on investment for them to implement exactly. DEI practice? And I, I don't think we've demonstrated that enough to make them realize that actually it's not just the right things to do. 
it, there is a business case to doing it. And, and these are the efficiencies or productivity gains or return on your investment that you're going to see by doing it this way. But at the moment, I think if you just leave them to it, then they'll probably just say no. You're right. And 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 one of the things that I want to bring in, well, I could respond a little bit more to that. So even in terms of the data, right, I often say that we're data rich and resource poor. That's one of my mm. favorite things to say. And one of the things about making that business case is that there is a lot of data <laughs> that shows the business case for operating equitably and how it benefits the greater society, including those who are currently in privilege. And, and power, right? The willingness is something else, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, you can provide people with the data. You can provide people with the analysis. Mm -hmm. You can provide people with the case studies, right? We have a lot of evidence-based research that has shown in this pilot study or in this five-year clinical trial and this whatever that these are, these are the outcomes, but do those get implemented and disseminated throughout the healthcare system? Do those then become policies that are fully funded <laughs> to operate mm -hmm. systematically to improve health outcomes? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. We're data rich and resource poor in the sense that the willingness of those in power to do it to sign mm -hmm. on, to give an approval and say, yes, let's try that. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and make that move. That's what we're searching for, especially as we're looking at developing leaders, right? And looking to break through those multiple glass ceilings where we're not alone and we're not the only ones holding up and being the rebel and, and all that kind of stuff. And so in addition to that, you know, a lot of what we've just talked about in regard to Clinical research has been like from the perspective of big pharma, but my first love was psychology. So I am first a social scientist, similar to Dr. Ramey. And mm -hmm. when I participated in um, developing social behavioral research, that was also an area where we needed more diverse and inclusive trials in regard to better understanding things like patient provider communication. Right. Better understanding quality service provision, better understanding counseling, how to help people make decisions, how to support them through healthcare decisions. Mm -hmm. Those were things that or even being able to accentuate what type of clinical services they were getting by connecting them to care in the community that provided for their other social determinants of health. So those are things that are not necessarily handled in big pharma. They're oftentimes handled more in university settings, right? Or more social science type firms. So tell me, Dr. Ramey, tell our audience for that matter, how does diversity and inclusion play itself out more in those social science? So mainly uh, when we talk about clinical trials, research and development, we tend to think of them in terms of quantitative data. Mm-hmm. And this is what much of the industry is not just fascinated with, but tend to capitalize on, all right? Quantitative data. And so we end up with numbers and stats. The problem with that is that people who are different basically overlooked in that data. They get lost in the in-between data. 
and that's because we haven't taken proper stock of qualitative data, i.e. what are some of the experiences that these individuals are going through. So while quantitative clinical research is important, I would argue that qualitative clinical research is equally important. Mm-hmm. Because here we're talking about the patient's experience mm-hmm. of the service they are um, receiving. And and I want to say three things about this. One is harps back on the question of the title. I called out, but they didn't hear me. Yes. I think that is such a powerful cry mm-hmm. that I have heard ever since I was a kid. Mm. Listening to my mother and her sisters or, you know, people in our church, you know, the, mm-hmm. the mothers in our church talking and you you know you're pretending you're not listening and you're listening mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up and and even to my adulthood and even recently I heard mm-hmm. this as well and so people in white coats are not able often especially white men in white coats but also white women too are not able to hear the cry of the pain of patients from black and minority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of, I actually teach a, a module on womanism. Now, mm-hmm. Womanism is a social change model that was developed by Alice Walker. She's seen as the proponent. Yes. Of and the idea here, and it's very applicable in healthcare, mm-hmm. in but it addresses the perspective of black women and women of color addresses the the intersectionality of gender and race within the historical context and influence Mm -hmm. of their health. So Jenna Truth, we mentioned her earlier on. She, in 1851, I think it was, gave a speech, a famous speech, entitled, Ain't I a Woman Too? Yes. She was speaking to a women's convention in Ohio, as my memory serves me. And basically she was arguing that as a black woman, isn't she a woman too? Can't Mm -hmm. she be heard? And she was referring to the intersectionality of her race, her gender, her class, and her marital or non-marital status, because that's that's part of the matrix also. So Mm -hmm. you've got a black mother in the hospital. If she has a ring on, she's treated differently than if she doesn't Mm -hmm. have for example, all right? And how she speaks determines often the type of reception she's going to get. Well, part of the legacy of African enslavement and and colonialism is that of hypersexuality. And women Mm. helps us to unpick that and helps us to deconstruct what is meant by this notion that Black women are seen as hypersexual and therefore they are over exuberant in their behavior mm. and they provide a, a sort of seductive distraction to the mm. man in the white coat so he doesn't hear her or, 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 mm. or right. Or there is the hyposexuality where mm. she's not seen quite as a woman 
but she's seen as, as the big black mama, for example, who can take in all sizes of pain and she doesn't feel anything because she's, she's nursed all our children mm-hmm. and she's looked after, she's raised all our children uh, through thick and thin and therefore she can bear all. And these two imageries are somehow part of the colonial gaze, this normative gaze mm-hmm. that stereotypes the women, the black women, when they are t- being treated. And it's a commanding perspective that is had from a European or Eurocentric point, um, point of view. It universalizes everything, and therefore they think that they, they know everything as mm-hmm. a and, it, and and the the flip side of that is black people generally, at least here in this country, tend to be very reverential toward mm. the white gaze, and they often deferential. That's the word I was looking for to mm. towards the white gaze, and hence they don't always speak up in the way that they could, and if they do, it's it's almost coded language. And mm-hmm. therefore, medical practitioners need the kind of educational intervention that helps to apprise them of what they are dealing with so mm-hmm. that they can adequately hear what's going on. Sometimes even in our community, even in our own black community, we hold the women, the black woman up as such an idolized individual that we think that, you know, she can take all sorts of pain also, right? Right. I was sharing in a class once this this notion, and a South African woman said to me in Zulu, they have a phrase that is something like, Wathint umfazi, wathint umbokodo, which translates, mm-hmm. strike a woman, you strike a rock. So a woman is equivalent to a rock. And wow. this reflects the fact that women are perceived and expected to to be able to endure all sorts of pain, all sorts of abuse, also mm. all sorts of difficulties. And despite their pain, they are often showcased, if you like, in this system that perennial, mm-hmm. perennially marginalizes them, but in this system that asks them to be strong and to be long-suffering. And I think practice, researchers need to be taught how mm-hmm. how to listen to diverse communities and mm. what they need to be taught of the cult they need to be they need to uh, shore up their cultural intelligence so to speak so that mm-hmm. they can hear the nuances of right. the pain and some of the struggles that we are privy to in our own community but mm-hmm. needs to be heard outside of our community i could go on a lot more than that but i thought i should just bring in that aspect of qualitative research that is needed within the ambit of clinical trials. Thank you for sharing that context, because it also speaks to what we talked about earlier in terms of what are some of the cultural norms around health and healthcare by and about Black people, and mm-hmm. how does that impact the way that we seek care, if we seek care, and how that influences the care that we receive? I mean, you, you you uncovered so many things in regard to what needs to be done and what needs to be addressed yeah. to dismantle those unhealthy and inaccurate 
belief systems and how to do that is to engage the communities that you're talking about, right? Yes. And not just continuing to work from this 80-20 model of, well, the majority of people are white, European, so we're fine if, you know, everybody in our trial looks the same, you know, because that's just the majority. It's like, no, there are other people who don't fit that profile and who do need and deserve comprehensive health care. And to know nothing about them and not to engage them means that you're not doing your job. You're not doing all of your job. You're only doing a portion of it and you're being rewarded for it. And so with that- I just quickly in intervene. One of the yeah. things that we did on this very note that you're raising, one of the things that we did during the COVID, some of us did, who were fairly influential black leaders in our communities, we gave people toolkits on how to deal with the medical profession on the point of entry, what to say, what not to mm. say, in order to, in, in, so that they got not only equitable treatment, but so that they came out of these institutions alive. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Mm. yeah. Can on. I just, because I, yeah, I just thought that I would um, share a personal story about this mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it yes. kind of connects with the title because it, mm. it really resonated with me, actually. It gave me a bit of a lump in my throat mm. because I am one of those people. And, you know, I think that some of the things we're talking about are so baked into mm. society. I, I, you know, I wonder, is a toolkit enough? Is yeah. the competency training enough? So the experience that I had was when I had my first son mm. and I went into hospital and, you know, first of all, my, my labor was going all normally, you know, mm -hmm. as you were expecting. And it was probably about 10 hours in, you know, mm -hmm. I started to think, okay, well, something's not really happening. And, and so they gave me some medication called syntocinin to, you mm -hmm. know, try to increase my, my labor. And that's when I realized things were going wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was in so much pain. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling the midwife, I'm in so much pain. And she said, no, no, you can wait, you can wait. And the pain mm -hmm. over the course of about seven hours got worse mm -hmm. and worse and worse to the point I was crying to my mm -hmm. husband, you need mm -hmm. to get help. Mm -hmm. You need to get on the phone and ring any doctor from mm -hmm. my phone book and mm -hmm. get them to help me. I'm actually dying. I wasn't mm. exaggerating. I absolutely believed that I was about to die. Yeah. Mm. And he was desperately ringing, kept trying to get the midwife to come in to give me some pain relief. He said, no, 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 you're all fine. You're not really in pain. Mm. And she continued. So in the end, my birth was extremely traumatic. Mm. It was 25 hours long. Yeah. And I had no pain relief yeah. and I mm. ended up with a number of different complications afterwards, again, with no pain relief. Yeah. Yet the two women in rooms opposite got pain relief. Mm. And I remember thinking, mm. so on top of this, what I haven't told you is I worked in that department. Mercy. Mm. I was a doctor mm. who three mm. weeks prior had worked in that department. Mm. 
I knew the people who were supposed to be caring for me. Mm. And they still didn't believe me. Wow. So someone like me, who is a qualified medical practitioner, I've worked in the department, I know the process, I know how things are supposed to work, and they Mm -hmm. still didn't come to help help me. And, you know, the trauma from that, you know, is, you know, I ended up with proper post-traumatic stress after it. Mm. It was dreadful. And, And the impact that that has on you. And I remember questioning it. But, you know, months and months afterwards, mm. just not quite understanding what had I done wrong that mm. they didn't want to help me. Mm. And that's what I think about with, you know, the, the people that we're talking about here. These are real lives, real experiences. Yeah. Sorry, I feel a bit emotional because it's, um, yeah. you know, it's brought, yeah. it's brought up, um, you know, that a, a really difficult time, but it's, really galvanized me to start that process of mm-hmm. active listening to say you know these are these are voices that are not heard yeah and we must hear them yeah and mm-hmm. we we must ensure that we're we're giving people the best care that we can give them yeah. regardless of the color of their skin or their cultural background or what language they speak yeah. Um, everyone deserves to be treated like a human being. Yeah. And but I, I think it just it was one of those experiences where it's really given me an insight into how difficult it's going to be yeah. to make that change happen. Because it wasn't just one person, by the way, it was several people who were yeah. all involved yeah. in that time period. So you know, yeah. really, really hard. To make the change because these these are not these are not just health institution baked in these are societal issues yeah. at the root of the problems that we're talking about today. Yeah. And can I just emphasise? Uh, and I just thank you for for being vulnerable and open. In the yes, way thank you. And my similar thing happened almost word for word in the birth of my first child, except her mum wasn't a health practitioner. And so I remember feeling so helpless and mad at the same time mm-hmm. and angry at the same time. But can I just emphasise that when we're talking about clinical research, we should not just focus on the quantitative metrics. We should also focus on qualitative metrics the problem with qualitative or the challenge with qualitative metrics is that you need a bit of cultural intelligence in order to listen and to hear what's really going Mm. on i've supervised a number of phds and masters students as you can imagine and a lot of their research is in field study right and and so um, one popular a methodology that is used is phenomenological practice. This is this is a kind of reflexive reflexivity practice mm-hmm. where the researcher has to be in tune with the lived experience of mm-hmm. uh, the respondent. And the challenge that my researchers constantly have is how to how do you listen? Mm. How do you hear? what's really going on and that requires in my mind 
a degree of cultural intelligence that cannot be replaced, that cannot be substituted. And part of the issue in the spaces that we are we are in is that they are operated and governed and led by people who have little or no cultural intelligence of the other. Yeah. Consequently, the conclusions that they make are not applicable to our people. Mm -hmm. In fact, and, and quite harmful to our people. Mm. I mean, Gifford, just on that point, I mean, we know there are not enough researchers who are black. No. Amen. So how are you going to get that psychological safety? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If the person who's asking you these really challenging questions doesn't look like you. Yes. The reason I can be vulnerable in this group is because I know that you'll understand how I feel. Sure. Yes. So there's, you know, there's an immense power in that. So if we want these stories to come out, then, you know, we need to encourage people from black and ethnic minority groups to see why it's important to think of it as, you know, a job that they would want to do. Mm -hmm. and and then let's support them in overcoming all the barriers that are there within academia to even get into academia. Yes. Yes. Um, and whilst they're there, feel like they're being included and, and that they belong because we yes. need to keep them there. Yes. Um, there's too many people who get in, you know, are treated appallingly and then feel that yeah. they need to leave. I mean, when you look at the number of black professors in the UK, yes. I mean, the number is tiny isn't it i think it's 20 or something 24 very, or something. Mm, wow very very few i was shocked yes so you know i think that there's i, I you know i see a lot of re, you know researchers i'm sure it comes from a place of them wanting to do good I'm but sure this is, it does. But, but, but i feel but, very uncomfortable when i see white researchers wanting to do work but, on black but, you know Mm. But you know, Marianne, you know, this is inflected by class as well. Let me explain. So traditionally, research positions in England mm. have been tied to people who are doing their PhDs, right? Eventually. Right. And people who back in the day were doing PhDs were people who had, you know, they had inheritances to, to wait upon. So they, mm. you know, they, their parents were well-to-do. They can afford to support their daughter or son yep. who was doing research for, the, for maybe the next three years on, on a paltry sum of money, all right? Because they're right. not paid much. That's the issue. They're not paid much. Yep. I have, I, you know, I told you about my nephew. I, 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 I was with my nephew yesterday. I sent him. He was off to Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. Well, Northern Ireland, to be to be clear, and what and he's just graduated what three years ago from medicine, and I said, "Well, you go. What are you doing? Going to Ireland?" And he said, "I'm on. Lo I'm doing locum, Uncle." I said, "What do you mean you're doing locum? Why don't you just you know cut your teeth in within a particular a career track at a hospital?" And he said, "He said they're not paying me much, and I mm -hmm. don't have I don't have the privilege of some of some of my white counterparts." whose parents bought them a car, you know, <sighs> bought them a flat elsewhere. You know what I mean? He suddenly doesn't have that. He started from scratch himself. So he has to go locum in order to earn some decent money. And, and what is locum for our American oh, audience? Locum is like a peripatetic doctor 
where you are not employed directly by a, a national health trust, but you are be you're almost like an agency doctor. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or yeah, you're filling in shifts for somebody yeah. who can't do the shift. So he wow. found a position where he can do that for a year in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, so that he can earn some decent money. And then he said, after that, that uncle, I'll be able to save up and maybe I'll, I'll think about going back into the system. Can we just pause for a second right there? Because y'all are, you want to talk about touching on stuff that's personal and things that like are really resonating with me. I mean, so much of what you guys are talking about speaks to my story. Number one, I'm a person who grew up wanting to study psychology because I was concerned about the mental health of Black people because I recognized how much we have been through and going through and all that stuff. With that, I learned that, you know, getting a PhD was critical, right, for me to be a psychologist and, you know, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate I worked really hard. I graduated magna cum laude. I was the president of the the local chap the university chapter of our National Honor Society, our Psychi National Honor Society. I was president of the psychology club. I did all the things summer at University of Michigan. Did research with a number of different and could not get into a PhD program, right? Wow. Hmm. For years. And then when I finally did, it was after having worked for at least five to 10 years in research, you know, at the project manager level and a variety of other ways. And when I got in, any challenge that I had was a personal problem. Yes. Right. There was no real customized support to who I was and what it was that I needed. And so people commonly look at my credentials. I have all of the training of a doctoral level professional, yeah. but I did. I literally could not afford financially, mm. emotionally, mentally, physically to continue my program. Not only that, but there was one of the reasons why I couldn't afford it was because it was an uphill battle of people pushing against me saying, this is not for you. Mm. And then learning about the number of and the breadth and depth of Black women, especially, but Black people in general, who experience the same thing. Mm. Some of them pushed through anyway. I had a child <laughs> that I needed to take yeah. care of. And so I did it. I didn't. I said, you know what? I need to go ahead and try to make some money. I have to be able to protect, you know. And so now I see where even my colleagues who, you know, have the PhD and the multiple degrees, they are struggling through postdocs to get their uh, research funded. They are struggling through interview processes to try to get hired. They are struggling to, to have their work acknowledged in the same way as their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And so what you find is that, or at least what I find, is that there are jobs even that are out there that you have to be privileged with a certain amount of wealth backing you up to be able to take that job and do that work in the yeah. field, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't pay. 
So that's why you find that a lot of very well-intentioned, good people who come from a privileged background that oftentimes are white have Mm -hmm. these jobs that are interfacing with black and non-white communities because they can afford to take that, you know, $70,000 job that we can't live off of because we don't have nothing else backing us up. And then when we ask, and then when we ask for more money, they're like, well, we can't justify giving you that unless we give that to other people, but I'm not other people. No. Yeah. And I, I bring mean, something to the table that other people can't bring, namely my lived experience, namely my cultural perspective. And so yeah. I, I mean, when we build, when we're asking, when people are saying, you know, you need to build a pipeline to get more people of color into higher education. You need to build a pipeline to get more black doctors. Yeah, you need to build that pipeline to get them there. But then what happens when you drop them off? Mm. Where is the accountability there to Mm. really nurture their careers? Where is that accountability there for industry and, and employers to really compensate them so that they can do the work? And to Marianne's point, and I'm sure to yours too, Dr. Ramey, have the mental health care space that they need to recover from being the only, to recover and regenerate from fighting the fight and being the rebel at all times. So it's, 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 it's this whole, like, again, we talked about systems, right? And there are systems that make it difficult right? For Black people and non-white people, but especially Black people to Mm. show up and serve our community in the way that we know it needs to happen. And then for those who are there, they're constantly having to justify over and over again why their work is critical to the overall health and wealth of the organization or institution that they're serving. You know, if, if, you know, one of my business cases is if you have an equitable health system, then you're able to serve more people. Yeah. Right. If you have a trustworthy organization, then people will trust you. And yep. if they trust you, they will come to you. Yeah. If they don't, they won't. You're missing out on a whole group of people who need like healthcare is essential. There's no person on this planet that doesn't need uh, some type of healer at some point in their life. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm getting all fired up. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I definitely, uh, I, I completely hear you because, I mean, there's the, a the reason why I'm doing a doctorate at my age. And it's because yeah. I couldn't afford to do it um, when I was younger. And I'm yeah. the oldest, I think I'm the oldest person on the course. Um, right. And the wisest. <laughs> of course, of the wisest. But, you know, it was, it, I would have loved to have done it, uh, but I didn't have uh, have enough money I had to go out and work yeah and it's only you know as I've become you know into higher paid jobs and and uh, into leadership positions that kind of give me some flexibility to say now I want to do what I really want to do yeah and you know it's it's fantastic experience but I also know it's not the right way around (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't have had to wait until this long to be able to have the opportunity yeah. to do it. But um, but unfortunately, that's that's how it went for me. Um, so, and I think that it's going to be really more, you know, even more challenging for doctors coming through because there are certain specialties where you actually have to have a PhD mm, to be able to be, mm, for example, 
a cardiologist yeah, or oh, wow. a neurosurgeon. Yeah. So what yeah. we'll see oh, wow. is, a, again, this kind of by, you know, they like to call it, uh, um, it's by merit, isn't it? It's, yes. mm. it's, it's, a, it's a meritorious system. Yeah. meritocracy without, you know, mm-hmm. meritocracy without without really understanding it well you know it's not it's just um, <laughs> those that can afford it can do it yeah. and those that are you know you know have incredible potential may well be mm-hmm. knocked out purely because it's unaffordable so, so if you what... add another barrier in which is a phd mm-hmm. to be a brain surgeon who do you think is going to be able to be a brain surgeon exactly right Exactly. And the, you know, whiteness is embedded within bureaucracy. Yeah. They, they deliberately make it more bureaucratic because it favors and privileges whiteness. Mm-hmm. That's something to, for you to think about. And I, um, and it's something that I've studied. I would say because of that and because of everything that we've talked about, we need each other. Yes. We cannot go it alone. I think part of the struggle with many individuals and Generation Z and, and millennials are balking against this is that we think, especially children of the Windrush generation, we've, we've bought into some aspects of Eurocentrism and the way, you know, the way other people or the norm have performed. And we think that if we copy them, we'll be all right. But we no, we need each other. Mm-hmm. We need we cannot go it alone. We need the support. And so the the one thing I do for all my PhD students is to build support networks. That's what we do. We support we have support networks that are black, that I mm-hmm. that are uh, engaging, enabling, empowering, and therefore for excellence. And they all get by because of that. You right. it's not a lone ranger thing. And I think part of the problem with Eurocentrism is the Mm -hmm. individualism that props it up. Mm -hmm. We have to balk against that. Yeah. And can I add one more thing into there, Gifford? And uh, because I absolutely believe in the power of people coming together, hence why I, you know, put my hand up to do, to do this podcast, because Mm -hmm. I, I don't care where you are in the world. We've all got similar problems. Mm. And if we can come together as a collective group, how much stronger we are together. I think the other thing in here for me is just, it's something about just really thinking about what the end goal is. I guess what I personally don't want to see is that there's only one way of doing something, that there's a purist notion of, well, we can only do it this way or with these people. Right. What I'm saying is, I don't really care what you look like. No. If you want to participate in this journey of change, we Absolutely. want you on board. I don't care if you're white, black, brown, whatever color. You know, if you're passionate and really want to see change happen and you're motivated and you're enthusiastic, sincere, and you truly believe in the end result, we Absolutely. need your help. Because I think if you're, if you just, if you, become a purist and it has to be only this one way of getting it done or it's not done properly then we will never get there we well, just the, we can't the odds are stacked against us the good news right? is when you study black history and you study what constitutes africanicity 
is that we know we can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. We've always been collaborators. Mm-hmm. We've always been part of solidarity movements with others. We should never shy away from that. The moment we become exclusive and the moment mm-hmm. we shield practices from others is the moment, I think, we will end up in the same way. The, uh, the very people we're trying to escape from or survive or endure is what we will turn out to be. And I think, mm-hmm. I, so I subscribe to that 100%. Yeah. This has been such an awesome conversation. I was so excited to get you all on. I knew that this would be so full of gems and just freeing, even for me, and I hope for you all too. And for this season, I have started to, you know, round out the conversation with this last question, which is, is there a question I didn't ask that you would like to address before we go? Is uh, there are always questions? It's just that is there time? That's my question. Right, right. And so we might even leave this for the audience for them to chew on. Is there a question you'd like to ask the audience to chew on before we go? I would like, in the in the name of collaboration, I would like to know if they are, if there is anyone who wish to share more of what we've been talking about, and mm-hmm. that they make contact with myself and. Dr. Marianne, um, to see mm-hmm. how we can take take the work further, take the cause mm-hmm. further. I'm I'm always open to learning, so that I can sharpen what I do on this side of the pond. And I would say mine is if you connected with this podcast, with what we're talking about, with some of the issues that we brought up today. You know, if there's one thing that you're going to take from this and change about yourself, what will it be? Mm-hmm. So name it. One thing. What Name it. One thing. Because I think, again, how we address this, you know, this massive issue is, is through partnership, through collaboration, being together. But there's also an individual component here, mm-hmm. which is you need to show up mm-hmm. and you're going to have to have some challenging conversations with yourself yeah, and really reflect on your own practice and your own behaviors and your own attitudes, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we go through this journey. And as a really good friend of mine likes to say, uh, Sylvia Stevenson, she's a DEI specialist. She likes to call this a relay. I used to say mm. it was a marathon, not a sprint. And she says, no, it's a relay. You know, yes. just, what What is our lap going to be about? Mm-hmm. You know, before we hand, hand over the baton to the next person, mm-hmm. what is our lap going to be? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what can we demonstrate in that lap? So, yeah, it's a bit of a call to action, really, for people. Yes. To start to think about what they're going to do and what changes they're going to make. Wonderful. Wonderful. Ashe, amen. Thank you so much. And so now we're going to go ahead and wrap up and be ready to move forward with more conversations on questions you didn't ask. Thank you so much.